Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Welcome to FASD Hope Season 2. It's 2022. January is National Birth Defects Month. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones. Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones is the Chief of the Division of Dysmorphology Teratology at the Department of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego, Medical Director of the Mother to Baby California Pregnancy Health Information Line, and Co-Director of the Center for Better Beginnings. He is a pediatrician by training, specializing in the identification and treatment of birth defects. He is actively involved in research, teaching clinical work, and university and public service. Dr. Jones is considered the leading expert of fetal alcohol syndrome, FAS, as he was one of two doctors at the University of Washington who first identified FAS in the United States in 1973. Dr. Jones' research has focused on the evaluation and diagnosis of birth defects, identifying the mechanisms of normal and abnormal fetal development, and the recognition of new environmental agents that cause birth defects. His work on the recognition of new human teratogens is primarily focused through Mother to Baby California, a counseling and research program funded in part by the state of California, and monies received from the Organization of Teratology Information Specialists, OTIS, as part of a cooperative agreement with the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Kenneth Jones has authored over 400 publications in scientific journals, as well as several books, and he is the author of the textbook titled Smith's Recognizable Patterns of Human Malformation. I'm so honored to be speaking with Dr. Kenneth Jones for our first episode of Season 2 of FASD Hope. Welcome everyone to 2022 and season two. I am so honored to have today's guest. I have been waiting all year to speak with today's guest. He is considered the leader in FASD and he also has just paved the way for so many research science clinical studies. He has just done an amazing amount of work. And as a parent, I am so, so thankful for today's guest for not only who he is, but what he's done for the FASD community. So I'd like to welcome on to FASD Hope, Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones. Dr. Jones, welcome to FASD Hope. Thank you very much. (laughs) So 
I am just so, again, I'm so honored that you're on our show today. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with your amazing career, um, your clinical work, research, and your legacy in FASD, can you please share your journey for those who are not aware of everything that you've done for FASD? Well, I, I, I definitely can. I, I, my journey as far as this disorder is concerned really started out in 1973 when I was a research fellow um, with Dr. David Smith at the University of Washington. Um, and I was a fellow for being a fellow means that um, I'd gone to medical school and I did a, a internship at the Philadelphia General Hospital. And then I uh, did uh, pediatric residency training at the University of Washington, and then I was in the military for two years, and then I came back uh, to Seattle, uh, where I um, did a this fellowship with uh, with David Smith um, in what's called dysmorphology, and dysmorphology is basically the study of children with birth defects. Um, and as it turned out, one day in in um, January of 1973. Um, Dr. Smith got a call from um, Dr. Shirley Anderson, who ran the pediatric outpatient clinic at the University of, uh, at, at the King County Hospital, which was the county hospital uh, in Seattle. It's um, now called Harborview Medical Center. Uh, and she um, uh, wanted him to come down to evaluate um, eight children, all of whom had been born to chronic alcoholic women because she thought that they um, looked a little bit unusual. So it turned out that um, a pediatric resident by the name of Christy Euliland, um, a few years before that, had been on call one night and um, she was uh, asked by an obstetric resident um, if she knew anything about uh, babies born to alcoholic women. And she said, no, she didn't, but she'd find out. And so uh, she went to the library, looked up everything that she could find out, find on the disorder found in the major textbook of pediatrics or of obstetrics that it said that alcohol was good for the developing fetus. Um, and so she went back upstairs and talked to the obstetric resident who had asked her this question. Uh, and they sort of rolled their eyes and they went in to, to deliver a baby who was born to a, a woman who was uh, an alcoholic. And the baby was, I gather, underweight for the appropriate gestational age and um, uh, small in every way, had a small head. And Christy became very interested in this, uh, in, in babies born to chronic alcoholic women. And she, over the next two or three years in her residency, was able to recruit uh, and evaluate, uh, I think, 12 children all of whom were born to uh, chronically alcoholic women. And she identified the fact that these kids were all small, they had small heads, and they had developmental delay. And then Christy went out into the practice of pediatrics in the Seattle community, and she turned over these babies to uh, Dr. Shirley Anderson. And Dr. Anderson thought they looked a little unusual too. And so she asked Dave Smith to come down and look at them. And I being uh, his fellow went along uh, as well. And we got down there to the King County Hospital and these eight children were on their care, caregivers laps, uh, sitting around um, an examining room. Uh, and we went from child to child to child and examined them. And four of those kids 
um, had this very specific pattern of abnormalities that's come to be known as the fetal alcohol syndrome. And all eight of them were, were intellectually disabled and all eight of them were small, but these, the four of these kids had this very specific pattern of defects. And so we went from there back to Dave's office at the University of Washington and looked in his unknown files. And his unknown files were kids that he had seen over the last uh, 10 or 15 years in practice who he didn't know what they had. And we put into the file, there were thousands of kids in there. And when he put what he, he put into the file, the three features that we had seen in these children. And when we did that, of the thousands of kids in that file, two kids fell out. And when we went back to look at their mother's charts, uh, their mothers were both chronic alcoholics. So in a period of about four hours that morning, uh, in the spring of 1973, we had seen six kids who looked very much the same, who looked somewhat different, who were growth deficient and had intellectual deficiency, all of whom had been born to chronic alcoholic women. And the next week, Dave went to Akron, Ohio to be a visiting professor. And while there, he uh, asked if they had ever seen a child born to an alcoholic woman. And they said, yeah, we had just seen a, such a child about four months before. And Dave asked him to bring the child in so he could examine it. And he did examine that little baby. And that baby was a dead ringer for the six that we had seen. And while he was away, I was called over to the Children's Orthopedic Hospital uh, to see a child with hip dislocations. And um, that child had been born to a chronic alcoholic woman as well. And that child had the same disorder. So here, literally in a period of about four weeks, we had seen these eight kids uh, born to alcoholic mothers. So that's how this all got started from my perspective. And it was a pretty amazing four weeks, I'll tell you, for me. <laughs> wow. Wow. What an amazing discovery in such a short period of time. In your career then, Dr. Jones, that went from that discovery to being published in, in the Lancet and to just having it just kind of explode. Can you talk a little bit about the growth of it, uh, of the growth of, you know, yeah, the I, def I definitely will. And, 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 you know, I, it, it surprised me at the time, but in retrospect, it doesn't surprise me at all. I talked about this disorder for the first time um, at the Society for Pediatric Research meeting that spring in San Francisco. And I, I must admit to you, I was scared to death. There were about a thousand pediatricians in the audience. And the second um, I finished speaking, hands went up all over the auditorium and wow. everybody had the same thing to say. <laughs> wow! And that was that this could not have been due to alcohol. Women have been drinking alcohol for years and years and years and nobody had ever discovered anything like this. So this has to be something due to something other than uh, alcohol. So it, it, it turns out that it had been discussed for many years <laughs> and uh, it uh, had been discussed in the Bible. I was just going to say, Dr. Jones, that, you yes. know, when I appear on, on a particularly faith-based podcast, I yes. refer to Judges 13 because yes. we know that the angel of the Lord said to Samson's mother, yeah. three times do not yeah. consume wine or unclean 
you know, do not eat anything unclean and do not consume wine, those very words. So, and I heard you speak um, several times and you referred to that, that passage, you know, it's in the old Testament. I don't know how much more you can get specific as far as don't drink while you're pregnant or even thinking about becoming pregnant. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it was pretty amazing to go back in the literature. And, and that wasn't even the first thing that was written about it. It was written about in, in Carthage um, that um, women should not drink uh, alcohol on their wedding night because they would have problems, which, which was before Christ by uh, quite a while. So, so it's, it's pretty am amazing uh, to realize how much has been written about it. Hemingway wrote about it. Huxley, Aldous Huxley wrote about it in Brave New Worlds. It wasn't called the fetal alcohol syndrome, of course, but, but um, it was stated that in fact, you don't drink during your pregnancy. So initially there was disbelief and, and, and then uh, people started uh, recognizing this disorder and people throughout um, the world really started to try to uh, better understand the disorder, better understanding the neurobehavioral abnormalities that are associated with it. Um, and then um, a guy, two people, um, a guy named Ernie Abel, and, and I think his student, uh, wrote a paper about um, the fetal alcohol syndrome in which they said that the fetal alcohol syndrome had developed, first of all, into a social disorder, um, which I tended to agree with. It had, clearly was a social disorder. But they also said that it uh, led to moral panic. And I, I had trouble with the concept that this had developed into moral um, panic, but I will tell you that that changed for me in 2018, because um, in 2018, the Washington Post came out with an article. Um, it, it, as, as it turned out, there um, a woman named Kathy Mitchell, who is a good friend of mine, um, and who was one of the great advocates for this disorder. I don't know whether you yes, know. Absolutely. Mitchell. And she founded NOFAS, which is now she did. FASD United. Yes. yes, she certainly did. And um, her, her, her initial interest in this disorder came in the early 70s when she had a, a little girl with this disorder. And um, when she found out that the little girl um, had these problems related to alcohol. She stopped drinking. And, and as I said, she became one of the great, really great advocates for this and talks about this disorder all over the world. But she talked to a uh, journalist there in, in D.C., Washington, D.C., uh, and asked her to write an uh, article about, uh, about her little girl uh, and her experiences with alcohol to try again to make people aware of this disorder. And there were just a huge, huge, huge number of letters to the editor that came in, really greater than 50% of them, just completely demonizing Kathy for the fact that she drank during her pregnancy. And, and I, I really must say that I agree at this point that this, um, this disorder has led to a moral panic. It's a sort of a tragic situation that we live in here in terms of that. But um, that's, I think, where we are as far as this condition is concerned. So, so the, the, the recognition of this disorder, uh, I must tell you, surprised me quite a lot. <laughs> but in retrospect, it, it probably shouldn't, um, because I think that when we, um, as individuals, hear things that are new and that uh, are hard to understand, uh, we tend to 
think that um, they're not the truth yes. <laughs> and we deny that they exist. So uh, that was my initial experience with this disorder in terms of the recognition. And Dr. Jones, that experience just opened the door to what we know now about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, that not only is FAS, what you discovered in FAS is, is, you know, you have a spectrum of how alcohol affects an unborn child. And we're airing this episode in January 2022, which is National Birth Effects Month. And we know that alcohol is the most harmful of those substances that can affect a child. And we also know that it, it, it is long-term, you know, the effect is over the lifespan. It it is not people. I think people often have this um, misconception that, Oh, you know, if, if it's an illicit drug, it must be more harmful. Or if it's something that, you know, is not common, it must be harmful. Um, But we know that alcohol is the most serious, most harmful substance that that can affect. And again, our society, and I've had this discussion, I promise everyone that we'll go on to the questions for Dr. Jones, but I've had this discussion, Dr. Jones, with so many of our guests that our society normalizes alcohol use. And when you don't drink, it's abnormal, it's questioned. And, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful to, to pioneers like you and to, and like Kathy Mitchell, who have said, you know, this has got to change. This is, this is not acceptable. This is not right. Absolutely. Uh, So I, you know, again, I'm going to thank you a lot during this interview, Dr. Jones, because what, what you've done for just for the world and for the community and, and particularly for parents like me, I'm just forever in, in gratitude for you standing up and saying, this is, this is correct. This is science. This is, <laughs> you know, this is it. This is fact. Right. Right. So um, preparing for my interview with you, I asked some very trusted listeners, um, you know, what do I ask to the, to the person who's considered the leading expert in FAS, you know, and they gave me some wonderful talking points. So I, I'd like to ask you some questions before we talk about the wonderful presentation that you did recently. Um, I, I'd like to ask some questions from our listeners. So okay. our, our first question is from a family member of a young adult who has an FASD. And she, she asked you, is it frustrating that so many years later from your discovery of FAS, that FASD is still relatively unknown and often misunderstood. It, it's very frustrating. Uh, and um, it's very frustrating for many reasons. I mean, when you realize that this disorder, and I, I never could conceive of, of what the prevalence of this disorder was back in 1973. Um, and I could never conceive how serious a problem this was. Uh, back in 1973, but it's so frustrating at this point to realize that we're dealing here with a uh, disorder, which as you have pointed out, is the number one recognizable cause of intellectual deficiency in in the United States and and in Canada and in Western Europe and uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, where I've been a lot um, as well. Um, And it has an incredible prevalence in 
in South Africa and in South Korea and everywhere where people drink alcohol. Because if you if you drink alcohol during in in your life, you're going and you're a woman and you get pregnant, you're going to for the first six weeks of your pregnancy, you're not going to know you're pregnant and you're going to be drinking alcohol. So it's a it's a um, incredible problem and and the fact that we um, are still so unaware of this disorder is incredibly frustrating to me. There's, there's no question of it. And I'm, I'm sure it's even more frustrating to people who have children with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and realize the fact that it is really ignored in, you know, I'm, I'm, you don't know, but I'm from, maybe you do know, I'm from California. And, and um, we are doing so little for this disorder in the state of California. It's just a disgrace. We, we have here something called the Regional Centers for Developmental Disability, which are sort of mission control for individuals, both children and adults with, with, with developmental disabilities. And it's paid for by the taxpayers of the state of California. So in every large population based in, in, in this state, we have regional centers. And fetal alcohol spectrum disorder does not qualify for the regional centers in the state of California. And that's ridiculous. So here, we're, here we're, we have the most common recognizable cause of developmental disabilities right in the state of California and the regional center for developmental disabilities does not qualify it uh, for admission into the regional center. So it's a very, very frustrating situation. And I must tell you, you know, um, and I, I know you want me to end this with talking a little bit about hope, and, um, but I, and I will talk about hope throughout this entire discussion because I am um, becoming increasingly hopeful as far as this disorder is concerned at this point. I, I think we are at a tipping point as far as this condition is concerned. And I think that people, are more and more and more starting to become aware of this disorder. So, and it, and it comes from people like you who are putting, um, d doing this broadcast about this disorder. And, and as I'm sure you are aware, um, Amy Korvachev from Minnesota and um, the Senator from, from um, Alaska yes. um, have uh, put, put up uh, a legislation at this point. Yes, um, that, the FASD that, um, Respect Act. Exactly. So I'm very um, optimistic about things right now that things yeah. are going to change and they are changing as far as this disorder is concerned at this point. But it is very it continues to be incredibly frustrating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and thank you, Dr. Jones. I appreciate I, I just appreciate how you're, you're acknowledging what we're trying to do in, in, in sharing awareness and and um, being a resource for our listeners. So I, I appreciate that. Another listener who is a parent of three young adults that have an FASD shares this. It seems that autism awareness has led to huge shifts in perception around the disorder and more funding. Yet we have minimal funding and minimal to no support for FASD. Besides the FASD Respect Act, which we know, you know, as this airs is progressing forward. Yes. Are there additional suggestions for how to mobilize and try to get funding to do more than merely create awareness and prevention? Many parents, myself included in, in her question, feel that most of the attention and effort goes towards prevention of FASD campaigns, which we do need, but not towards life management 
of an individual born with an FASD. And getting back, we're airing this during National Birth Defects Month, which we know FASD is a birth defect, whether it be visible, such as FAS, or not physically visible. How can we create more noise in it, especially while we're waiting for the FASD Act? You know, it seems that this might be something that might be considered a little um, controversial, but so much funding and so much awareness and, and there's just so much going towards autism, yet we know that the prevalence of FASD is much higher than autism. How can we change that? Yeah, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think I, I think one thing that we need to be doing is trying to learn from the people that have, have done all the lobbying as far as autism is concerned, because they've done a great job. Um, but there's one great difference between autism and the fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, or autism spectrum disorder and the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and, and that is um, stigma. Um, and stigma is an absolutely devastating problem as far as this disorder is concerned. Um, I think as long as um, there is the stigma existing as far as this disorder is concerned, as long as that exists to the extent that it does, I don't think that we are going to get the support um, that we need to um, get services for kids and all the other things that we desperately need that people, that the, the autism population gets. So I think that we need to do something about, um, about stigma. And I think that the stigma is, is everywhere as far as this disorder is concerned. I think obviously, obviously um, it is focused primarily on the biologic mother of a child with this disorder. And we've got to get rid of that. Uh, and obviously it, it permeates every aspect of our culture. And uh, pediatricians and obstetricians, unfortunately, um, seem to be stigmatizing um, pregnant women who drink alcohol during pregnancy more than almost anybody else. And pediatricians are right there with them. I, and that's just has to stop. I, I, as long as we we've got it, we are we are not providing care for these kids because um, pediatricians, for example, don't want to uh, stigmatize. They they think they are not stigmatizing by not doing anything about it. They think they are not stigmatizing kids. Um, but quite quite frankly, it's the opposite because when they um, don't um, diagnose this disorder and don't admit that this child has his or her problems because of prenatal alcohol exposure, that child does not get to consultants. That child does not get into support programs. That child does not um, benefit from the things that are available for these children. Um, so I think that, that the, the and, and the same is true with obstetricians in terms of, of women. Um, so I, I think we've got to get rid of it. There are some people, actually, um, NOFAS is doing some they're working hard as far as this condition is concerned. Um, Kathy Mitchell is a great supporter of this concept. I think that we, we just have to do something to, to beat this. Um, because as I say, as long as we're, as, as long as we are fighting for a disorder that is stig- as stigmatized as, it, as this is, we're not gonna get any support with, as long as people stigmatize what we're talking about. I mean, you take, you take, uh, a donor 
at a, um, who's uh, um, donating money, they go, they're going to want to donate money uh, to little children who have cancer, uh, far more than they are going to want to give money uh, to support children with this disorder. Um, so it's a, not that I'm saying we shouldn't be giving money for little children who have cancer. We definitely should. And we should be giving money for kids who have autism. Um, but um, we deserve to get a little of that money as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was a, a really key point that uh, you made in the November presentation uh, with Dr. Christina Chambers, um, the FASD prevalence recognition stigma and its relevance to the juvenile justice system. You really hit that home, Dr. Jones, about stigma and about how stigma is really preventing the movement forward of funding, of supports, of, of that whole ripple effect of, yeah. of you know, receiving um, supports, especially, you know, I having a son who is 19 that has an FASD, we know that as children become teens and become adults, the supports are less and less and less, you know, right. and right. that needs to change. And, and what I think, you know, I'm writing it in big, bold letters in my notes here is, is that stigma. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I actually, without any question, the diagnosis is critical. So yeah. let yeah. me just say a, a word about that. I, I think that, that there are some, this disorder, generally speaking, is not picked up in the newborn period. And it's not picked up in the newborn period for a variety of reasons. But the number one reason is that the, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of children who have this disorder do not have the fetal alcohol syndrome. They have uh, alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. And so they are completely normal from a structural standpoint. They're completely normal with respect to their growth. Um, and yet they clearly have neurobehavior problems and their mothers drank alcohol during their pregnancy. So given that fact, these babies are completely normal at the time of birth and nobody suspects much less the mother that the child has been affected by alcohol because she probably doesn't, she, she may very well. And I think in, quite frankly, I think in, in many, many cases and maybe the majority of cases, um, she does not think that she drank at a risky level during her pregnancy. She certainly didn't drink to hurt her baby. Um, and I think that a huge number of children who have been affected by alcohol have been affected um, to a, by um, a mother who, who clearly had, didn't think at all that she was drinking at a risky level. And, and she quite, quite frankly, often did not drink when she knew she was pregnant. She drank before she found out that she was pregnant. And that was around the sixth week of her pregnancy. Um, and, um, but she drank maybe a couple of glasses of wine at night. And that's certainly not risky drinking for most people. And, and uh, yet, in fact, it, it could very well have affected that baby. So I think that the first um, thing that um, is a game changer as far as a um, family is concerned as it relates to their child, it's to uh, think back on their pregnancy and, and come to terms with the fact that they, that they through their um, um, drinking, when they didn't even realize they were pregnant, could have affected their baby. 
Um, so, so we see problems in kids with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, generally speaking, um, when they're around two, two and a half yes, years. Old. Yes. And that's and, when we, we saw those problems in our son. Yep. That yeah. I hear often from parents around two years old is, yeah. you know, is that age when they really start to see those primary characteristics come out. Exactly. And they come in and they, um, say to their pediatrician, you know, I'm concerned about my baby because, um, she just is not, um, speaking as much as I would like to think she should be speaking. And, you know, she started being a little aggressive with her siblings and other little issues. And the pediatrician is not going to ask the mother if she, um, any, way, any way he or she could ask. And there are obviously good ways to ask that and there are really lousy ways to ask that. But in fact, most pediatricians don't ask it at all. Um, because they feel they would stigmatize somebody if they asked that sort of a question. And so um, it doesn't come up. And the mother does not uh, remember the fact that she was drinking prior to the time that she knew she was pregnant. So I think that when you ask what would be the, the first thing to do, it would be to um, think back and, and remember if... Um, if you might have been drinking as one of those things that you did uh, prior to the time you knew that you knew you were pregnant, um, and then um, uh, talk to your pediatrician about that and and make sure that the that the baby is referred for um, for an evaluation um, that would involve um, neuropsychological testing, and that can't be done at two years of age. It has to be done a little bit later than two years of age in order to get accurate tests for this disorder. And um, then get to therapists and other uh, individuals that are going to help the family help their child um, in terms of this disorder. Now, five years ago, I would have told you that that's it. Um, but I, I will tell you that now there are beginning to develop all kinds of intervention programs as far as this condition is concerned. So these children can benefit. I should say that these intervention programs are really developed um, for kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So the diagnosis is critical in terms of getting these children into the intervention programs that are appropriate and are, are have been developed specifically for kids with this disorder. And they're there now. Um, 20 years ago, nothing was there in terms of these kinds of things, but there are neuropsychologists now who are doing fantastic things in terms of, of this, of developing intervention programs. So if you make a diagnosis of this disorder, or if a diagnosis is made of this disorder, the doors are open to a certain extent. Now they're not open to the extent that we all would like them to be open. For example, the education system in this country has not begun to understand this disorder or think about doing anything about this disorder. There are some programs in Canada that have been developed that are really, I think, great. Um, but in the United States, very little has been done in terms of the education system. And the result um, is that when these kids uh, go to preschool, the teachers don't know anything about how to, first of all, they don't recognize, all they, all they see is a child who is um, acting out and aggressive and has significant behavior problems. They don't have a clue that the child has 
been affected by alcohol. Um, and um, if they did, they wouldn't know anything about how to deal with it because, and I blame myself for this and all of us who are working on this disorder, because you can't ex expect the education system to have done anything about something that they don't know anything about. And, and we need to, and, and I think this is one of the more important things that we need to be doing now, and that is to do something to help the educators of this country to deal with kids who have this disorder, because it not only is a problem for the child himself or herself who has been affected by alcohol, but it's everybody else in the class as well, because they are frequently pretty disruptive and the teacher doesn't know how to deal with it. So we, we need um, to work with the educational system to do something about this disorder. But that, that's, a, that's a huge other issue. But I think that, that the, the important thing to be thinking about as far as adapting is actually then after the, the diagnosis is made and you get your child into programs, and I should say that the earliest the ch a child with this disorder gets into programs like this, um, the better off the child is going to be and the better off the prognosis is going to be for the child. So it's really important that the diagnosis is made as early as possible. And that requires honesty and, and awareness of the disorder and willingness to talk about it. And that's a tough thing to do. I mean, yes. it's an incredibly tough thing to do Yes, um, because you feel guilt about this kind of thing. And it's really, it, it, it's, it's everything. It's your worst nightmare. I know it's your worst nightmare, yeah. but this is the kind of thing that I think is the, the major issue that, uh, that is there at this point. So that I, I, I think that there, I, I think I, I, in my clinic at this point, I have a therapist who sees every patient with me, every child that I see, she sees with me. And, um, and we have patients come back every six months, in some cases every year, but oftentimes every six months. And, and her, her name is An Andrea Torzone, and she, um, she has more experience than any therapist that I've ever met with this disorder. And she is able to spend an hour with a patient and try to help them in terms of helping their child adapt the, to the difficulties that that child has, um, which again is a huge issue as far as this condition is concerned. Yes. So that, that's where I'm coming from at this point, as far as that is concerned. And, and amazing, Dr. Jones. And I am writing all of this down so our listeners, when we share this episode, so our listeners can see, you know, what we're discussing in these key points that you're bringing up. And I think, you know, for for me as a parent, I think the game changer for me was learning about the diagnosis, like as much as I could. So yes, reading yes. books, participating in trainings, participating right. in webinars, conferences, everything. I think for me, that was a game changer because then, you know, we spent 15 years trying to get a diagnosis. And then once we got a diagnosis, we're like, okay, we have the diagnosis. Now we need to learn more about it. You know, I think as a parent or a caregiver or a loved one, the more you know about, and, and not just with FASD, with any type of birth defect, any type of, you know, developmental disability or, or neurodiversity. I think the more you know about it, the better you can hopefully prepare 
you know, especially as that individual ages and, and there are new characteristics that haven't totally. been seen before. I totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. So yeah. that's, that's great. So that's great. education definitely is, is, education is huge. a game changer. Yeah. Not only yeah. for the educators, but for the parents and caregivers. Absolutely. And, and also the um, awareness that there are people out there who are now providing intervention programs that yes. are specific for this disorder. Yes. And I think that the vast majority of people, of parents who have affected children with this are not aware of that. They're not aware that we now have intervention programs for this condition. Um, so I think that all that is of critical importance. Yes. Critical. And, and I've had other guests, Dr. Jones say, you know, we got the diagnosis, but then we didn't get what to do. You know, we just said, okay, yes, it is. This is, we're confirming it, you know, so hopefully, you know, down the road, especially again, you know, we have a lot of hope in this pending legislation that once you receive a diagnosis that, you know, practitioners, wherever, you know, your, your child, loved one is diagnosed, you can say, okay, now here's access to some programs that can help you learn about it, or here's access to training and, and whatnot. That definitely is something to, to be hopeful for. I totally agree. I totally agree with you. So one more question from a listener, Dr. Jones, and then we'll, right. we'll, uh, we'll talk about the uh, presentation that, that you gave in November. So one last question, and this is actually from an FASD educator. She's okay. a trainer in, in one right. of the many, um, I would say one of the uh, several programs offered in FASD specific training. So she says this, this uh, question, although FASD is recognized by the scientific and medical community as a clinical disorder, no diagnostic criteria or detailed description is provided for FASD in the DSM-5 besides NDPAE. Right. which is mentioned in other neurodevelopmental disorder. And I'm using that in air quotes. Yeah. Um, her question is, what do you think it will take for FASD to get into the DSM-5 manual in the same way that autism is in the DSM-5 manual? Right. Well, I, I, first of all, to just give a little bit of background about NDPAE, which I think is, was a, is a great move forward as far as this disorder is concerned. Uh, because as I said, to start with, um, in my clinic, um, for every 10 children that I see who have been affected by alcohol, um, only one of them has FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, and nine of them have uh, what I call ARND, or alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder, but what a psychologist or a psychiatrist would call NDPAE, neurodevelopmental disorder associated with prenatal alcohol exposure. So, this is a, um, a diagnosis that basically was developed by, psych by psychologists, um, very, very smart psychologists who uh, came up with the, um, with the criteria for NDPAE. Now, I don't, I don't think most of them would agree with me on this, but I feel quite strongly that NDPAE and alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder um, are really quite similar. Um, with the, uh, with the except, exception that um, NDPAE uh, is also very, um, also has uh, adjustment disorders as part of, as part of it, and, and ARND does not. And I think that that is, in fact, a very important part of the diagnosis of this disorder. So I think that 
we have to have, and we do not have right now, psychologists, neuropsychologists um, as a group who are as behind this disorder, NDPAE, um, as I would hope there were. I, I think that, I mean, you take school psychologists, for example, they don't know much about this disorder. Um, they really don't. And, and I think that there are a lot of neuropsychologists who are focused very much on autism spectrum disorder, and that's great. But I think that there are a lot of neuropsychologists who are very involved with, with uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, and that's great. But I think that there are not many out there who are in fact focused on this disorder. And I would again bring up the issue of stigma. <laughs> so, so I think that um, we are not going to have um, the NDPAE um, diagnosis um, become a part of the uh, DSM-6 um, um, until we have a group of neuropsychologists who are demanding that it be a part. And I think at the present time, we only have a few of them who are very committed to this disorder and have done an absolutely phenomenal job. Um, Anne Streisguth from the University of Washington, who was on our original paper with this, on this disorder, has done probably more than anybody else in the world um, as far as this disorder is concerned. And I can name a number of other psychologists who have followed her, um, uh, who have done just a huge amount of work. Um, um, Claire Coles and Julie Cable at Emory have just been incredible as far as this, as far as this disorder is concerned. Um, Sarah Matson here at San Diego State, and there are, I, I shouldn't be, point, be singling some of them out and leaving others uh, out. Um, but there are a bunch of them that have, and, they, and they've done some really incredible things as far as this disorder is concerned. So I, I think that we need more neuropsychologists that are focused on this disorder, just like we need more pediatricians uh, that are focused on this disorder. And um, I, think, um, I think that um, we need to be uh, transferring the diagnosis of this disorder to developmental neuro, uh, um, behavioral and neurodevelopmental pediatricians um, who are focused on this kind of thing. And I think we need to get them more and more involved um, in this disorder, um, which I'm very hopeful of, of doing. So I think we, again, we need more awareness uh, from neuropsychologists. And um, I fear that we, are, we don't have it again because of stigma. And stigma. And, and, you know, um, they would rather deal, and I, I don't blame them. Uh, stigma is, is a hard thing to fight. Um, um, and, you know, you have to deal with your own stigma as far as it's related to, you know. So that, that, that's where I think we are as far as NDPAE is concerned. And, and I think it's great that they have done that, come up with that concept. And I, I hope that this is a call to action for neuropsychologists who are listening or, or people who are, are in working with neuropsychologists that this get united and, and really try, try to rally to, to get 
that in the DSM-6. into the DSM-6. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I'm so thankful for our listeners coming up with those wonderful questions. Now I just have a couple for you, Dr. Jones. I had the privilege of hearing you and Dr. Chambers virtually present about FASD. And again, taking fastidious notes here during our conversation, everything goes back to stigma. Really, everything goes back to stigma. And what really struck a chord with me was when you shared and you, you, you mentioned this previously, how so many pediatricians and OBGYNs stigmatize those moms of and the children with FASD. Why do you think this is still happening? Of course, we, we've spoken about this, but um, and how can we change this conversation? I, I know for me personally, I, I really try to bring awareness of FASD is not in certain populations only. I think that's a, a very common stigma slash misinformation that it's only in adoption or only in foster care. No, the prevalence may be higher, but FASD affects everybody. So um, why why do you think, you know, and, and your amazing career, Dr. Jones, looking back at this, why is this still happening and what can we do to change this conversation about stigma? Right. So, so basically, um, th- this is something that I'm really interested in, the, the issue of stigma. Um, and I think that we all know um, that pregnant, that women who drink alcohol during their pregnancy are stigmatized and that their children are, who are affected are stigmatized. So we know that. But the issue is we've got to change it. And there's, there's a lot of awareness in the FASD community that stigma is a problem, a serious problem, but there is not a great deal of um, work being done on ways to deal with stigma. And um, I have been working for the last uh, five years with a man named Pat Corrigan, who is a neuropsychologist at the Illinois Institute of Technology, who is an expert in stigma. And the work that he has done over the years has primarily been done on stigma relating to mental illness. And um, he has gotten interested um, in the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So he, Pat has told me, has educated me on how to deal with stigma, not how to recognize stigma, because I can recognize it easily. Um, But the issue is, how do you deal with it? And he tells me that education does not deal with stigma. I mean, it's, it's, it's important in terms of helping people with, to get over stigma. It's important as, to um, make people aware, as you just pointed out, that this is not a disorder of people with, who come from low socioeconomic status, who are undereducated, who um, have, have no money, um, it, it's, by, it's definitely not just a disorder there. Um, in fact, as you may or may not know, people, and, and I'm not talking about um, um, people who are pregnant now, but people who are non-pregnant, men and women from higher socioeconomic status drink more alcohol than people from low socioeconomic status. So um, whether that carries on to pregnancy, I can't tell you because that study has not been done but there's no reason to think that at least in the first six weeks prior to the time a woman knows that she's pregnant, 
that there aren't more women of upper SES, upper socioeconomic status than, drink, than people from lower socioeconomic status. So I think that, that it, it's important to educate people about that, that kind of thing and make people fully aware of the fact that this is not a disorder that discriminates against one group of people as opposed to another group of people. So that's important. Um, but Pat has, has taught me that that's not going to stop stigma. You're not going it, to, it's important to, to how you talk about uh, a child with a fetal alcohol syndrome and caused a child, um, see now I'm stigmatizing, uh, who caused a child <laughs> to have the fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, it, it, it's important to talk about how you talk about people with this disorder and with women with this disorder, but that's not gonna stop stigma. Basically, what that has used to uh, overcome stigma, at least as it relates to mental illness, is, is to learn through the lived experience. So the woman who herself um, had a baby, drank alcohol during her pregnancy, and had a baby with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, has the lived experience. And obviously for a huge number of women, this is something that they have not gotten over, understandably. But for some women, they have managed to be able to talk about this disorder. Um, so, and, and talk about it to other people and explain to other people how they feel about it and what happened to them and so forth. And I've been lucky enough to, to get to know two people now who have become very good friends of mine who have lived that experience and also can get up in front of a group of people and talk about it. And so we, we have developed a program, which is very difficult to get off the ground, but we developed a program through funding from the uh, um, CDC to um, uh, have uh, pediatricians in particular talked to um, by a woman who has had a lived experience. And I can tell you, I've heard them give this talk probably 15 times, talk to a group of pediatricians, talk to a group of obstetricians. And I, and I can tell you um, five minutes into a 20 minute talk by one of these two women, they've got the um, entire group of people, 100 people in a, in a room in the palm of their hand. And by 20 minutes, everybody's in tears in the, in the room. So I have seen pediatricians changed by this approach. And I think, and Pat Carrigan has assured me that this, using this approach is the only way that you're really going to um, change this issue of stigma. Um, so that, that's where I am at as far as this is concerned right now. I think we desperately uh, need to put on major full court press as far as dealing with this, um, with this stigma that is uh, so devastating. And I think that there are ways that we can do it, but it's not easy. It's not easy for anybody to talk about this disorder and try to deal with this disorder and to help people who have this disorder. Um, and I think that the lived experience is the way to do it. And Dr. Jones, I'm, I'm learning so much. And I, too, agree that 
those with lived experience, especially mothers who, you know, did not recognize that they were drinking when when they were pregnant and adult advocates who have an FASD. For me, those conversations really do change minds and change your thought process about FASD. So I, I would be so, so hopeful to see that kind of program like everywhere, everywhere, yeah. you know, yeah. um, that that is amazing. Right. Let's get into, you know, we've been, we're going into, you know, we're finishing up the second year of, of COVID-19. We're really hoping that this starts becoming an endemic and, and, right. you know, but we right. know that COVID-19 has really changed and continues to change the FASD population and community. We know that drinking has increased during COVID-19, especially research has shown that women of maternal age have, has increased uh, drinking. Uh, What are your thoughts about COVID-19 and um, how it's affecting the FASD population? Right. Well, um, I will tell you that my, the woman that I work with, who is the therapist, is scared to death about what has happened with COVID-19 because she thinks that you know, in four years, we're going to see a huge number of children who have been affected by prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, And I think she's probably right, um, because as you point out, COVID-19 has led to uh, a marked increase in in alcohol consumption in this country, but in in particular, and, and this is the really scary thing, it's greater in women than it is in men, this increase, which is really pretty scary to think about. So I think that that's, I, I agree with Andy Torzone, my therapist, that um, we're in for trouble as far as this condition is concerned, in, in terms of the prevalence of this disorder is concerned. But I think that we have had a, an immediate um, effect as well. And I think that that immediate effect has been on uh, children with this disorder, uh, because I think that, um, I think that, and I see this in my clinic all the time. Um, I think that this is um, this pandemic, uh, as far as um, the problems that have been related to lack of the ability to go to school and interact with other kids your age and friends and um, so forth for all kids has been devastating. Um, one of the most devastating aspects of this pandemic, because it's our future, those kids and their um, two years of their lives have been significantly affected by this. Um, and, and, and then I'm talking about for all kids, um, but I think kids with disabilities, I, I don't think I know that for kids with disabilities, this, this has been an even greater problem. And so I think for kids with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, we've seen really, and I shouldn't say, I shouldn't generalize it as far as this is concerned, because there's some been some positive things about it that I'll go into in a minute. But I, I think it's been really devastating for kids, the majority of kids with this disorder, the fact that they can't get out with their friends and so forth and so on. I'm, I've been amazed um, in some situations to hear some parents say that this homeschooling that has had to occur and the fact that they are not out in this regular school room has been a great benefit because, um, you know, one of the things 
that is um, a, a most is benefits children with this disorder as much as anything uh, is is to be in a secure environment and the school setting is often a difficult environment with all the other kids um, everything going on in the classroom the excitement about being with other kids being out on the playground all those things can be a real problem for kids with this disorder and so to be homeschooled by your mom uh, can be a really very secure, much more secure situation for you. Um, and a situation in which you um, are able to stop when your impulse control starts to uh, go haywire and you need to be given the opportunity to stop for 45 minutes and do something else. All those things can be very helpful to some kids. So I think I have found, I, I know I have found that that some kids, and this is, I, I, I think without question, the minority of kids, but I think that some kids have benefited from this situation. And Dr. Jones, I, I don't know if you're aware, but we homeschooled our son for seven years prior to COVID. We yes. actually did it as an accommodation. Yes. Um, and that just makes my heart feel <laughs> warm because we know that Every child is different. You see one child that has an FASD. You see one child that has an FASD. Everybody's right. different. But there are a group of, of, of us parents that have, you know, I learned long before the pandemic, but we know that for our kids that have an FASD, the structure at home and the connection at home is actually more regulating than in school, like you said, because of all those sure. challenges. So that that is a silver lining, you know, for those parents who were able to discover, hey, you know, my child actually does better, you know, being homeschooled. So um, as, as a homeschool mom, thank you for saying that, you know, and, and, and again, we know you and I both know every child is different, you Absolutely. know, and, and, and I'm very thankful that we were able to do so, you know, so, um, and yeah. we know that many, many families are not able to. So, um, right. but, but I'm, I'm appreciative of you acknowledging that. So I'm going to just wrap up a couple of quick questions. And, and again, once again, Dr. Jones, just thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. For everything that you've done for, for the FASD population. Um, I, again, I'm just so thankful that you're, you're here with us today. So what's one thing in your medical career and your legacy in working in FASD that you did not expect in, in the many decades that you've been in the FASD field? Right. Well, I'm going to be a broken record again. <laughs> it, it's 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 the stigma that I mean, there's absolutely no question in my mind that it's the stigma that is attached to this disorder. I, I mean, it hit me. Um, and actually, you know, Kathy Mitchell is the person that pointed it out to me. And and um, it, it really hit me um, and I didn't expect it. And I talked to a lot of people um, who are involved in this disorder, physicians that are involved, scientists who are involved um, uh, in this disorder. And as I said, and have said, everybody realizes that stigma is a, a big problem in this disorder, but nothing's happening about it. <laughs> and, and people talk about it, um, but, but there's very few people that are involved or trying to become involved um, in developing programs to get rid of it. 
And um, all these things, all these things are have been a huge surprise to me. First of all, that people who have this disorder are as stigmatized as they are. And you know, I I can sort of realize why people stigmatize. I can't get my head around the concept that, that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, has led to a moral panic. I mean, I think that that's a ridiculous concept, but it has, I think. And I think that a lot of this, a lot of it is related to stigma. I can't get my head around stigma to the extent that it becomes a moral panic. Uh, I can understand how people, how people stigmatize women who um, drink when they are pregnant. I, I, can, I can sort of understand that, but I think that they've got to get over it uh, and recognize that women are not drinking alcohol during their pregnancy um, to harm their baby. Uh, and there are many reasons why people drink alcohol during pregnancy, but I think the majority of it is that they don't know they're pregnant and they are um, they're drinking when they don't know that they're pregnant. They're not pregnant and they're drinking. And, and, and so it happens. And I think that's the majority of people. There are some people obviously who are addicted to alcohol and for that they need to have help. And for that, they, that's another reason why stigmatizing this disorder is such a problem because as long as this disorder is, is stigmatized to the extent that it is, a woman who's drinking alcohol during her pregnancy is not going to tell her obstetrician that she's drinking during her pregnancy, because why would she do that? Um, and so she continues, she doesn't get the help she needs. So the, the, the stigma just is everywhere as far as this disorder is concerned. And it, and that has really surprised me. And and so I think that something has to be done about it. And, and um, I, it's hard for me to understand, as I think it is to you as well, why. Uh, whereas we know that everybody's stigmatized, we're not doing something to better deal with it because we've got to overcome it. I think if I had to come up with a subtitle for today's conversation, Dr. Jones, I would say it all comes back to stigma. I, I, I really think, you know, honestly, everything is coming back to that stigma, you know, the progress, the support, the funding, the conversations, everything that, and not just acknowledging it, but yeah. like you said, doing something about it and doing something about it that will make that change. Absolutely. So I, I am just like we so need to change behavior. Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely. one thing to acknowledge it, but we need to change it. Absolutely. And I think too, as a parent, I've learned one of the biggest like paradigm shifts for me when I really learned about FASD was that I cannot change my son's brain. I can't change his diagnosis, but what I can change is how our family is, how we accommodate, how we adapt, how we educate others, you know, that you can't change the person who has, again, we're talking during national birth defects month, you know, you can't change, obviously somebody who is born with a condition that is, is lifelong, but you can change around them. You can change, make change around them. For and sure. that can give that person a better 
opportunity and, and better possibilities. Absolutely. So, so we're airing this in the beginning of 2022, January, 2022. Um, what are your plans or goals for 2022 and how can we follow the amazing work that you continue to do, Dr. Jones? Well, you're, you're very kind. I, I am most interested at this point. I'll, I'll just tell you a story. A, a very close colleague of mine um, said to me um, about maybe five or six years ago, um, you know, you're getting old. And, and only your best friends can tell you that, right? <laughs> uh, you're getting old and you need to um, decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. life. <laughs> and I said, you know, you're right. And what I've decided to do is spend my life dealing with this disorder. And I think that the major thing that I can do as far as this is concerned is to uh, try to develop programs really, and and I'm focused right now on the state of California, I I must admit. Um, And I can tell you one of the reasons I'm so focused on it is that there's nothing going on as far as this disorder is in in the state of California. It's just a tragedy. Um, and we have to have programs. And, and so this is what I'm working on. I'm, I'm trying to uh, develop, I'm trying to change policy in this state. Um, I have a clinic which meets once a week, um, entirely uh, devoted to this disorder and kids with, have, who have been prenatally exposed to alcohol and their families. Um, and, I'm, and so I am, I am, um, slowly getting out of the um, issue of doing basic or asking basic research questions and getting more and more involved uh, in providing service uh, to families and kids with this disorder um, and getting um, um, programs um, started throughout the state. Fetal alcohol, what I'm hopeful of is developing um, a number of Uh, FASD centers of excellence through the state of California that not only are there to provide diagnostic groups to diagnose this disorder, but also um, have social workers and psychologists there um, and have uh, interventionists as part of it. And within the community where that that center of excellence is to develop um, communication with education people I'm particularly interested in the criminal justice system right now as it relates to this disorder. Uh, and I think that they can have a huge impact uh, on this condition in terms of mitigation uh, for kids and getting kids into uh, good rehabilitation programs who have gotten into trouble with the law. A huge number of kids with this disorder have problems with the law. So that's what I where I'm going in terms of my thinking is relative to this disorder is concerned. Um, so that, that's what. Oh my goodness. What, that sounds like an amazing journey. And, and I love to hear that you're continuing your work and your passion and, and just the amazing help that you've given to, to millions of families, myself included. So you're very nice to say that. I, 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 that's very, very nice of you to say. Thank I you. am just appreciative. And, and on behalf of the people who, who uh, listen to me every week and, and who are just walking on this journey with us, I know um, from the bottom of all of our hearts, 
Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Jones. And, and to, to hear that you want to continue your work just and centers of excellence. I hope that takes off and every state has multiple centers of excellence. I oh, my too. goodness. And there are a number of states right now that do. Yes, yes. And I love how NOFAS, which is now FASD United, highlights and you're able, you know, that's a great resource. You're able to go and find those centers of excellence. So hopefully people out there don't have years and years or, or, you know, that, that they're able to find, you know, a center to get that, that proper diagnosis or the proper support or, or the next steps. So Dr. Jones, it has been an absolute honor to speak with you today and and to have you as a guest on FASD Hope. I like to end our episodes on words of hope. And I think you are a beacon of hope for me and for for countless families, countless individuals who live with FASD. But what words of hope can you offer to listeners today who have who we've just learned so much from this conversation and and the many years of experience that you have? What few words of hope can you leave uh, for yeah, our listeners? I, I, as I think I've told you, I, I, I am very optimistic as far as this disorder is concerned right now. I, I really am. I, I think that um, I think we're at a tipping point here with this condition. I think that um, uh, more and more people are becoming aware of this. I think that the fact that this um, um, FASD Respect Act is going to, I hope, fly through Congress once they start uh, discussing it. And I think that, uh, but I think that that's only one thing. I think that uh, the fact that um, Minnesota is continuing the programs that they have been doing for so many years and they're still hot on it and uh, Michigan has got a great program throughout their state and Alaska has a fantastic program and I think more and more states throughout this country are beginning to be aware of this condition and doing something uh, to help children and families with this disorder and allocating funds for this and um, agencies throughout their, their state legislatures are becoming aware of this condition and doing something to help kids with this disorder, just like they help kids with uh, some of the other disorders like, uh, like autism spectrum disorder. And um, so I think we're on a, 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 an exciting path right now. And um, I'm, I'm very, I am very hopeful as far as this condition is concerned. And with those amazing words of hope, we are ending our conversation with the leading expert in FASD, a legacy, the doctor who started it all and who continues to fight tirelessly for FASD, Dr. Kenneth Jones. Thank you so much for being on FASD Hope. Thank you very much for having me. It's really great to be a part of your program. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.